that is a, that's a cry and a, a task that will never disappoint as a pastor and especially as we just prayed for our governing officials. Uh, let me just tell you, if you don't know, although I know many of you know already, uh, but human leaders and officials will fail you. We are not worthy of your complete trust. Um, we are fallen, um, subject to sin and to life in a fallen world. And so my hope as a pastor is that you might sing that song as long as I am a minister here, that you might never sing a song to me, but always to Jesus, because that, that's, you're safe there. Um, and so we, Will and I both would, would pray and desire uh, that all of you, whether you're a member here, or whether you're not a member here, um, that you would learn to trust Jesus and that you would prove him or and or because he is faithful. He will never cease to be faithful. Um, so what a great, great song to sing. Well, we're gonna be in the book of Hebrews um, and Joey, my battery is low, so it might go out. I have the other ba- microphone here, so it'll be seamless. I will be ready um, if this microphone goes out. Um, but so we're gonna be in Hebrews. We're gonna be in chapter three uh, this week. But before we read our passage, I just, just wanna catch you up um, to date in where we've come from Hebrews. I guess not all the way up to date, but just last week, um, as we ended chapter two, what we saw is, is chapter two ended with, with a great encouragement that because Christ became a man, because he came and he suffered death, uh, we, we ended with the thought or the teaching that he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, as, as we transition from chapter two into chapter three, what, what seems to be the case in the original setting of this letter is that the, the people who the author of Hebrews is writing to that these individuals, the assumption is that they were being tempted to fall away from their confession. They were being tempted to forsake Christ. They were being tempted to neglect the message of salvation that had come through Christ. And there's a various, various means or various reasons they were being tempted in that way. And we'll see some of those in, in coming weeks and months as he kind of addresses some of them. But... One thing that that they were being tempted to do as they're being tempted to fall away from Christ is to go back to Moses. So so one of the temptations, they they went to forsake Christ and fall back on Moses. So part of what it meant in this time, if you grew up in Judaism and and you you heard the gospel and you heard Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, you forsook the old covenant and you worship Christ in, in the new covenant. And part of that meant being forsaken by those maybe you grew up with that were still in Judaism or whatever the case may be. And so there's this alienation that was required to follow Jesus. And, and so when, when pressure came, when temptation came, when, when there's persecution or threat, it was really easy to say, well, I'm safe back under the old covenant. I, I have a bunch of friends there and I know that, so I can just fall back there. And so, so that was part of the temptation. And so what I think our author is doing here at the beginning of chapter three is to show them that Moses is not safe. It's not okay to go back to Moses. In fact, it's dangerous to go back to Moses and forsake Christ. And he wants to show them the folly of going back to Moses after coming to Christ. And to show them that, he aims to highlight the status of Jesus. He he wants to highlight the greater glory of the Son, the greater glory of Jesus. And so in our passage, in the middle section, there's gonna be a comparison between this Jesus and Moses. And what we're gonna see it's not that, so, so to highlight Jesus, he doesn't say, hey, Jesus was faithful and Moses was unfaithful. That's not what he does because we're gonna see both were faithful. What we're gonna see is that Jesus was faithful as a son 
And Moses was faithful as a servant. So it's the identity of Jesus. It's him as the son, his status that elevates him and his service to God on behalf of the people. So it's Jesus and his identity and his function as the son that makes him far superior with far greater glory. And so we're gonna see that. It's the status of Jesus as the faithful son that is to compel the readers of Hebrews 3 to hold fast to their confession. It's his status as the faithful son that is worthy of their constant consideration. And as we read these verses, we'll read them in just a minute, but as we read them here today, I can't help but acknowledge that while we may not be tempted to fall back to Moses, there are many things in our lives, in our culture, many fears, anxieties, uncertainties that would lead us to fall away from our confession, that would lead us to to forsake Christ. And so in in that sense, we we are in a, a very similar place to the first readers. We are tempted regularly by, by things, by stuff, by people to fall away from Christ, to forsake our confession. And if that language is too strong, let it suffice to say that we live our lives in a world that is filled with Christ-blurring things. We live in a world that, where the call to consider or to fix our gaze upon Christ is in constant struggle. So, so this world is filled with Christ-blurring things that would prevent us from considering Christ or fixing our gaze upon him. And so it is in our context, in a similar situation as the original context, that Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 speaks. It is into this context that the faithful son offers us encouragement. And so I'm going to read Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. That'll be our passage this morning. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. You can follow along as I read. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. I'm gonna keep reading. I'm gonna finish the chapter. So just read along. That's our text, but, but just for context, I'm gonna keep reading. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? 
So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Well, let's, let's pray together. Uh, Father, this morning, uh, we want to fix our eyes upon Jesus. We want to consider him. We're thankful this morning that, that we share in a heavenly calling because of his work on our behalf, his work as, as the apostle and the great high priest. And so he is the substance of our confession. It is Christ who is Lord that we confess this morning. And so we praise you, risen Christ. We praise you and worship you for your faithfulness in carrying out the plan of your father and in laying down your life for us, your enemies, in order to make us friends. And so we recognize and we worship you as the one worthy of all glory and honor and dominion and power. And so I pray that as we look at this passage, that you would help us to hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope firm until the end. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, the the plan was to tackle this whole chapter in one sermon, but that was too great of a task. And so next week, Lord willing, uh, we will cover the second half of chapter three. So we're just looking at verses one through six this morning. And so verses one through six break down into three points that, that, that form our outline this morning. So verse one, we're gonna see the call or the imperative. This is what he's calling the, the readers to. It's what he's calling us to. Then verses two through six, or at least the first part of verse six, we, we see the comparison. That, that, that makes up the, the large part of this section, the comparison between Jesus and Moses. And then finally, the end, the, the last part of verse six, we'll see a conditional clause or the condition so, so you see there's the alliteration, the call, the comparison, the condition. I thought that was impressive that I could, could pull that off and it all makes sense. I didn't have to stretch for those. Right, but that's our outline, the call, the comparison, the condition. And that's what we'll work through this morning. So first look there, verse one, the call. The call, what, what is he calling the readers to? What is, what is God through the author of Hebrews calling us to? If, if you remember, chapter two just ended with a reference to Jesus as, as the faithful high priest who is faithful in his service to God. And, and as such, Jesus has made payment for the sins of his people. That, that's what the high priest does. We'll, we'll cover that in coming weeks. But that work as the, the, the high priest, the finished work of Christ is what sets the foundation for the beginning of chapter three. Specifically, notice how the readers are addressed there in verse one. Who are they? Therefore, holy brothers or brothers and sisters or brethren. That, that, that's who they are. They're the holy ones. And not only that, what do they share in? How does he continue verse one? Holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. So, so that, that speaks to the identity of those who are hearing this letter. The holy brothers and sisters, the holy brethren who share in a heavenly calling, who, who are partakers of the heavenly calling. These readers identified in this way are those who are the benefactors of the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. It's just been talked about in chapter two. And so at the outset of this section, the author is going to exhort the readers and he's going to challenge them. He's reminding them here at the outset that they have been set apart, that they do share in the inheritance. They are partakers of the inheritance. They have received the great salvation. He's gonna remind them of who they are here at the outset before he tells them what they are to do. So, so, so we, can't, we, we can't forget who they are. There's no question that when he calls them to, and so, so the call is, is consider Jesus, that's the call, but when he's calling them to consider Jesus, it's not a first time consideration that he's calling them to. 
He's not asking them to consider Jesus for the very first time. This isn't the case because no one is set apart. No one is a holy brethren, a holy brother or sister. No, no one is, is a, shares in a heavenly calling apart from considering Jesus. And so this call to consider Jesus, it's not an evangelistic plea here in verse one. The call to consider Jesus is a call to those who are already Christians. Now, I hope that makes sense. He, he says, you're, you're holy brothers. You share in a heavenly calling. And it's you who are already believers that I want to consider Jesus. I want you to do this. And I think there is certainly a lesson for us here who have been Christians for quite some time, those who have been following Jesus for many years. And that lesson is simply this. You don't ever take your eyes off of him. You don't ever not need to consider him. Jesus, from start to finish of the Christian pilgrimage, is the fixed point of your gaze. In fact, it's in considering him that the encouragement to persevere is found. It's, it's in fixing your eyes on him that you're able to run with endurance the race that's set before you. It's in turning your eyes upon him that the things of this earth grow strangely dim. And so Christian, whatever is ailing you today, whatever is ailing you this, this season, this time of your life, the remedy is found in considering Jesus. Consider Jesus. What, what does he mean, consider Jesus? What, what, what is meant by that? One commentator notes the verb used here to consider means to direct the mind towards and reflect on. It's sometimes translated, maybe your translation says, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whether it's consider or fix your thoughts. So that, that, that's the idea is to focus continually on Jesus, to resolutely focus your thoughts on, on him and his true significance. That's what it means to consider Jesus. And so in, in, in the face of temptation to fall away, in the face of drifting apart or, or away from the faith, the author tells the Hebrews to consider Jesus Focus on him, fix your eyes on him, set your gaze on him. The Christian life is one in which the gaze of the Christian is set, it is fixed. And it's fixed upon one person and that is Christ alone. And so this is the call, consider Jesus, fix your eyes upon him. But, but notice how he continues, that, that's the call, consider Jesus, but notice he, he fills out who this Jesus is. In verse one, consider Jesus, who is, he continues, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him. So Jesus here is identified as the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Notice the author identifies himself with his audience. He shares in their confession, and the point is that the confession of the author in the Hebrews, the confession of the early church, consists in recognizing that Jesus is the apostle and the high priest. He's the one. He's the one that, that the entire church, the, the, the entire foundation, the, the, the church itself from the beginning was built upon him. He is the substance of the confession. He is the substance of the Christian faith as he, the apostle and the high priest. And he, he's only emphasizing main points he's already made in chapters one and two about the identity of Jesus. So when he says the apostle, though, though he hasn't used the word apostle, it might be strange to think of Jesus as the apostle, right? He, this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is referred to as the apostle. But, so the word hasn't been used, but the function has been made clear. In chapter one and two, it, it's been emphasized and reemphasized that Jesus was the sent one. That's what the apostle is. The apostle is someone who is sent. And so Jesus has, has been sent and has spoken from the father, 
Verse one of chapter one, he, God spoke to our fathers by prophets in the past, but in these days he's spoken by his son. He's, he's the apostle. God has spoken through the apostle. He's the sent one. He's the word. And then just chapter two, verse three of chapter two, the message of salvation was declared by the Lord himself. He was the sent one who proclaimed the message from God. Jesus is the apostle, but he's more than that. So so as the apostle, he represents God to man. He speaks from God to man. Not only does he do that, he is also, as verse one says, the high priest, which changes the direction. Not only does he represent God to man, as high priest, he represents man to God. He's also the one who enables man to relate to God. As chapter two, verse 17 made clear, he is the faithful and merciful high priest who made payment for the sins of the people. He is the one who atones, who, who actually makes payment once and for all, for all of his people's sins. He is the high priest. And a lot more will be said about that in coming chapters, Lord willing. But it is Jesus, the apostle and high priest, upon whom we are called to fix our eyes. He's the one who we are to consider. And so Jesus, as the apostle, represents God to, man, to humanity, as the high priest represents humanity to God, and this is the one we're to focus our attention on. And so the Christian believes and confesses these things. This is the substance of the Christian faith that, that God has spoken by his son, and that his son has paid for our sins that we might be in right relationship with God. But notice the author doesn't mention these titles just for the sake of mentioning them. Instead, he mentions them so that he can convey the fact that Jesus in these roles, served as the one appointed by God. Notice that he serves as the apostle and the high priest because he was faithful to him who appointed him. So so Jesus doesn't just assume these roles on his own initiative. This is gonna come up again in, in Hebrews. He has to be appointed these and God the Father appoints the Son to be the sent one and the high priest. It's the Father who assigns and who gives these roles to the Son. And so the Son learns obedience. He, he submits to the will of his Father. He submits him and the Son was faithful to carry out the plan of redemption that God the Father ordained and, and brought to pass. So the son was faithful. And that's, that's the key word, that's the trigger word there here. He was faithful and it's his faithfulness that then brings to mind another one of God's servants who was faithful and that's Moses. And so call us, consider Jesus, the apostle, the high priest who was faithful to him who appointed him. And then he, he, he then brings up Moses to, to draw the comparison. So look there, verses two through six, we see the second point, the comparison which is the main section of these verses, the comparison between Jesus, this apostle and high priest, and then his servant, Moses. And so this idea of faithfulness to the assignment leads the author of Hebrews to bring up another faithful one who is Moses. And, and as the author, he in verses two through six, shifts his attention to a comparison between Jesus and Moses, we have to remember bigger picture in making this comparison. His point is simply to highlight the superiority of Jesus. That, that's still his point. He wants his readers to recognize the folly of turning from Jesus to Moses. There's a greater-ness that accompanies Jesus and a lesser-ness that accompanies Moses. And so to leave Jesus and go to Moses is folly. And he wants them to know Jesus is better. So he's bringing up this comparison to highlight Jesus. But he does so, which is fascinating, and he doesn't say anything bad about Moses. There's nothing bad said about Moses. That, that's not what he aims at. He, he doesn't want the estimation of Moses to suffer loss in the minds of his audience. He could say a lot of things bad about Moses, but he highlights 
the faithfulness of Moses. And in fact, remember, if he's writing to those who have come up out of Judaism, which certainly some of his audience is, if not all of them, Moses was the, among the greatest of God's servants. So if there's a, a Mount Rushmore of, of biblical characters, not just Old Testament, but biblical characters, Moses would be at least the third or fourth, maybe fifth on that. And so, so he is, is one of God's greatest servants. One commentator says, to the Jews, Moses was the greatest person who had ever lived. It was through Moses that God delivered Israel from Egypt, constituted Israel as a nation, and brought Israel the law. So, so that's a pretty significant person to play a role in deliverance in the establishment of a nation and bringing the law. Right? So that's a big part that Moses played. And so Moses would have been well thought of by all those receiving this letter. That, that's the appeal of falling back to Moses. And the purpose of the author is not to have them think less of Moses or to degrade Moses. The point is to show the role of Moses. Moses' role was inferior. There is a greater Moses that's come. There's Jesus, who's not a servant. He's the son. And so it's to highlight the identity and the function and the role of Jesus. And that's what's to cause them to hold fast to him. And so in this comparison, there's, there's one similarity that's highlighted and there's one difference that's highlighted. So what's the similarity? What's the, the one thing that's the same? I mentioned this already, but the similarity is that Jesus and Moses were both faithful in their service to God. Both were faithful. Look there at verse two. Well, verse one, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle, high priest of our confession. Verse two, who was faithful to him, who appointed him. Jesus was faithful. Verse two continues, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So faithfulness is the similarity. Jesus was faithful just as Moses was faithful. Jesus was faithful, Moses was faithful. The superiority of Jesus isn't seen in the fact that he was faithful whereas Moses was unfaithful. Moses, despite his failings, according to the author of Hebrews, was faithful, and he was faithful in all God's house. Did you notice that phrase? Faithful in all God's house. That's a significant phrase because that exact phrase is found all the way back in Numbers chapter 12, and that's where this author, I think, is pulling that exact phrase. You don't have to go all the way back to Numbers 12, but back in Numbers chapter 12, you have this, this uh, scenario of, of sibling rivalry where, where Moses, remember Moses, as, as prominent as he was, he had uh, two siblings, a brother and a sister, Aaron and Miriam, who, who, who partook in the leading of God's people, who helped Moses, but, but they weren't Moses, and they were jealous of Moses. And they began to question the role of Moses in God's house. And so I'm going to read, this is Numbers 12, I'm going to read verses 2 through 9, but just you can follow, or you can listen as I read, or you can turn there and follow along. But in Numbers 12, listen to how this, this, this scene un, unravels. So as they said, so this is Miriam and, and Aaron, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it, skip down to verse four, and suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out you three to the tent of meaning. And the three of them came out and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and he stood at the entrance of the tent and he called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I the Lord make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. 
Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he departed. And so, so notice the role of Moses. He is faithful in all God's house. The Lord speaks to him unlike anyone else. He is privileged in God's house. His role is unparalleled. God speaks with him as face to face. He was God's chosen instrument, God's appointed servant. God appointed him to his role. He didn't take it upon himself. He's just wandering in the wilderness and sees a bush on fire, right? That's God's initiative. God did it. But Moses was faithful. And so even in the, in the, in the, in the midst of, of sibling rivalry, he, he doesn't cease to be faithful. He, he doesn't give in to Miriam and Aaron and say, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, you guys can have the mantle too. Let, let's do, no, he is, he's faithful. He didn't shy away from his role as God's servant. But also think about him as leading the grumbling Israelites, Think of how easy it would have been to be unfaithful and say, God, I'm, I'm done here. In fact, there are points, there are low points. To kill me and start over. The people grumbled and grumbled and grumbled, but Moses, by and large, was faithful and led God's people. He endured opposition and he continued to be the only one to whom God spoke face to face. Moses was a faithful servant. We must not belittle the role of Moses. But, but after declaring the faithfulness of Moses, that's where the author of Hebrews departs from Moses and focuses his attention back on Jesus. Look at verse three. Just as Moses was also faithful in God's house, that's in verse two, verse three, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And so all the good, glory, unique ministry of Moses is now said to be far surpassed by that of Jesus. Here's the difference. It's not faithfulness. It's the glory of the ministry. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, the glory of the ministry, the glory of, glory of the person carrying out the ministry. Verse three continues. Here's how much more glory Jesus is worthy of than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So, so that's a comparison. That, that's the analogy, a builder of a house and a house itself. And so in this analogy, Jesus is the, the builder of the house and Moses is the house. Now, uh, that's, that might be a little strange, right? Considering Moses a house, right? That's a little strange, but, but that's the point he's making because the, the comparison conveys a clear difference between Jesus and Moses. There's a difference between a builder of a house and a house, right? There's a clear difference. And he's saying that's the same, that is, that, that is true with Moses and Jesus, the comparison clearly shows a difference of glory. Now, now, the fact that a house can have glory is obvious even in, in our world. I mean, there are homes that are beautiful. There are homes that, that, that can be said to, be had, to have glory in, in the sense of majesty and all, right? Homes can possess that. However, no house, no matter how much glory it has, will ever surpass the glory due to its builder, and that's true because no house exists without its builder. It's all derived glory. It's from the builder. The, the builder is the one who creates and, how, creates and builds the house. The builder is the only reason that a house exists, exists. If there's no builder, there's no house. And that's the point he's wanting to drive home. The builder has greater glory because the house itself owns its very existence to the builder. And for the purposes of Hebrews 3.3, when it comes to God's house or God's people, Moses is part of it, whereas Jesus is the builder of it. Jesus has an all-important role in the very possibility that any house in this sense could come into being. The house of God depends upon the work of Jesus for its very existence. No Jesus, no house. 
And that's the point he's making. Jesus as the builder is worthy of much more glory than Moses. He is greater. He is the one to whom we fix our gaze, not Moses. And here's where the author of Hebrews drives home the point that he's just laid out in verse three, namely that Jesus has been counted as worthy of more glory than Moses. Look at verse four. This is, this is the nail in the coffin. Verse four, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So just to make sure that, that we're not left thinking that Moses and Jesus simply serve different roles in God's plan, and the difference was, was just the assignment, whether servant or son, though that's true, though there is a difference. In verse four, the author of Hebrews drives home that the categorical difference between Moses and Jesus is that Jesus is God, and as such is the builder of all things, including his own house. In other words, Jesus wasn't just one builder of a house. It's not as though you could walk down the street and have more houses built by other glory-worthy builders. And it's not like, oh, oh yeah, Jesus built this house, so he's worthy of glory, he's a great builder. Oh, let's walk down the street, oh, here's another builder worthy of glory, here's another house. No, that's not it. It's Jesus built this house and everything. Jesus is the builder, the architect, the creator of all things, not just the houses, not just Moses, not just the angels, not just anything, but Jesus is the creator of everything. And that's, I think, how verse four functions here, just, just to make sure that they know there's no question as to who is the creator of everything. Jesus is being ascribed here in verse four, authority and power that only belongs to God. This is a claim to, to his divinity, but this shouldn't surprise us because the same point was made in the second verse of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days, God spoken to us by son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. And so Jesus played a central role in the creation of the universe, of all things. And so the author of Hebrews wants us to, to know, don't, don't look to Moses, don't consider Moses. The one who is far greater than Moses has come, consider him, fix your eyes on him. The glory of Moses has been far surpassed by the one who created Moses. Think about that. The creator of Moses is the one who we should look to, not, not Moses. And so this comparison between Moses and Jesus is completed there in verse five and into the beginning of verse six. Look there at verse five. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Stop there. Moses, verse five, was faithful. But he was faithful in all God's house as a servant. An important servant, yes, but still a servant. As a servant, Moses was faithful in God's house. That, that's a preposition that's significant. He was faithful in God's house. Moses served within, in God's house. And notice how Moses was intended to function in God's house as a servant. He was faithful as a servant to do what? To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses was never meant to be the end. Moses was never the final destination. He was always a part in the plan to testify to things that would be spoken later. Moses, as important as he was, served, a served in a role of preparation, not one of fulfillment. There was always another one coming after Moses, which is, which is why Will read Deuteronomy 18 earlier. There's a greater Moses who was always to come. Moses was never the end, just like David was never the end. There's always the son of David who's going to come. Moses 
In other words, it could be said was part of what was, what was conveyed in Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, where long ago, at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Moses was one of the ones through whom God spoke long ago at many times. The, the one who's speaking has now been eclipsed by the sun. That was the role of Moses, a servant in all God's house. Significant, yes. Faithful, yes. But inferior, yes, to the one who was coming after him. And that's where verse six, at least the beginning of it, takes us. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify the things that we've spoken of later. Verse six, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Do you notice that difference? Moses was faithful. Christ is faithful. As in present, Christ is faithful. Not Christ was faithful. Christ is faithful. This will be significant when, when the author transitions to, to the high priestly ministry of Jesus. But, but Christ is faithful right now. He is, he is remaining to be faithful in his role as high priest. But it's not only that he is faithful. Notice the preposition used in, in, in the relationship between Christ and the house. Christ is faithful over God's house. That's, that's a different preposition. Whereas Moses was faithful in God's house, Jesus is faithful over God's house. Over as in ruling and having authority over it. Jesus has authority that Moses never had. Jesus has a role, a function that Moses could, couldn't have dreamed of having. But again, this is the same tune, just a different verse. This is the authority that is not possessed by anyone other than God himself. And Jesus, verse six says, is over God's house as the Lord himself. He is over God's house as a son. He is the son. He's not just another in a long line. Jesus is not one of the many. Which though he was a great prophet, Moses was one of many. He was just a servant. That's not the case with Jesus. But it was the case with Moses. But it wasn't just the case with Moses. It, Mo, Moses was just a servant. Abraham was just a servant. Isaiah was just a servant. John the Baptist was just a servant. The apostle Paul was just a servant. Billy Graham was just a servant. And the list can go on and on and on. The, the, the history of the church is filled with lots of servants. And they, they are faithful servants, useful servants in God's house. And, and they are mighty servants and worthy of honor and respect. But none of them, not one of them, can be said to be over God's house as the Son. That title and authority is reserved only for one. There's one son and that is Christ. And he is over God's house. He is the builder of God's house. He is the foundation of God's house. He is the one who is counted worthy of much greater glory than any servant ever could be. It's his house. And that's the point. That, that's the comparison. The, the, the comparison is that there's no comparison when you consider it. Jesus and Moses are on totally different planets Totally different wavelengths, not even in the same universe. And it's his house, and it's he, he is the one we're to look to. And so this passage ends, we are, the author of Hebrews says, we are part of his house if, if he says, if what? The, the author offers a condition, which leads us to our final point. Verse six, the condition. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So, so this is what, what we would call a conditional clause. It's a condition. If you don't wet your bed, you get a piece of candy. That's a conditional clause at our house often. It's a condition. If the condition's not met, then, then it, you don't get what is promised. This 
is a conditional clause. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. There is a condition that must be met for us to be part of the house that Christ is head over. And that condition, according to verse six, is holding fast. Holding fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The, the point of the conditional clause, I would say here, as it functions in the book of Hebrews, is to highlight the danger that comes with the condition not being met. The conditional clause is highlighted just so you know, I, I don't want to do that. In this case, the condition is if the Christian doesn't hold fast, he or she isn't of the house. And so as believers, we should say, as we're encouraged to do in verse one, consider Jesus. I wanna hold fast to him. I wanna be part of his house. I don't want to not be part of the house. And so this warning, this conditional clause generates in the Christian a desire to do exactly what we're being commanded to do. And we'll see that in, in coming passages. This is how warnings function. The true believer hears the warning and says, I don't wanna do that. If we hear the warning and say, well, it doesn't matter because I can't lose my salvation. That is the dangerous place to be. The warnings function to generate faith and perseverance. And so here, th this danger is highlighted. Perseverance isn't optional for the Christian. And though it may sound too harsh, this verse, this warning is pastorally motivated, directed at the needs of the readers. He wants them to hold fast to Christ because as we mentioned, they were in danger of forsaking Christ or falling away. And whether you're falling away back to Moses or to something else entirely, if you fall away, if you forsake Christ, you are in danger. And it's a real legitimate danger. That's why chapter two, verses one through four, sounded a warning against neglecting the great salvation that's come through the Son. To forsake Christ, to fail to heed his word was to lose everything. And the author doesn't want his friends to do that. So the author of Hebrews wants his readers to hold fast. He wants them to persevere. And not just perseverance for the sake of perseverance, but perseverance for the sake of their own souls. It is a dangerous thing to, to forsake Christ in the manner that's being warned against here. And this is the scary reality, something that the rest of chapter three will unpack, but the scary reality is that one can be part of the house or appear to be part of the house as an involved in the community of God's people while still failing to respond to God's word with persevering faith. Now, that's why I read the rest of chapter three because the chapter three is gonna, is gonna recount Psalm 93 in the wilderness generation, the, the generation of unbelief. And he brings them up as, a, as, a, as an example, as a case in point to say, you can think you're part of it, but if you're not receiving the word with faith, you are going to fail to enter the promises. And there's a peril of failing to persevere. And so that's what he wants them to persevere. And here in verse six, the author uses this conditional clause to highlight the necessity of holding fast. And so notice the specifics of verse six. We are of his house, if indeed we do what? We hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now if, you just, if, if you're looking there at chapter three, skip all the way down to verse 14, which I read, but, but verse 14, notice it says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so, so that is a, a almost identical idea that's being expressed there in verse 14 and here in verse six. 
The idea is, is, is to highlight the necessity of, of holding firm, of holding fast, of persevering. And this is, in fact, one of the main purposes of Hebrews itself. The, the admonishing of believers to hold fast to what they have is, is one of the major exhortatory emphases of Hebrews. So, so there's sections of exhortation, and the exhortation is always, don't forsake Christ, don't fall away, hold fast. Because there were things that were drawing them away. And so confidence until the end is what is meant. Is what, it's, what, it's what's being encouraged here. Confidence until the end is what is meant by holding fast. Our confidence, verse six, the, the ESV translates the word confidence, but another translation uses the word boldness. To hold, fra- hold firm to our boldness, our confidence until the end. And the idea is that the believer has confidence and boldness when it comes to what God has accomplished through Christ. The call is to hold fast to that confidence and boldness and the ability or the rationality behind holding fast to that confidence, it's not, hey, j- just, just muster up that, that faith in and of yourselves. It's, the confidence isn't found in your own ability, but instead the confidence is sure, your confidence can be sure because your confidence is based not on you, but what on God has said and on what God has done. And so Jesus has died. Satan has been defeated. He is now risen and serving and seated at the right hand of the Father. That has happened. And so we can approach him with confidence. We can hold fast to our faith because it has happened. When we are not confident, we're, we're doubting God's ability to do and accomplish what he promises or promised he would do and accomplish. And so, so what happens, what was happening, I think, here in the, the life of the Hebrews and what happens in our own lives is outward pressure, life circumstances, suffering, persecution, unexpected things, they cause us to doubt or question God's plan and God's goodness. They say, well, why, why am I even holding fast? God doesn't care about me. Look at my life as a mess. Or, or why didn't he do this differently? Or, or look at these other people who, who aren't Christians and look at how they're thriving. Look at how happy they are. Why am I wasting my time? That, that's what happens when, when these Christ-blurring obstacles come and they cause us to doubt or question God's plan or God's goodness. And all of these things can cause our confidence to weaken, our boldness to falter. And the author of Hebrews wants you and wants me to hold fast, not because it's up to you to muster up that confidence, but because it's up to you, it's up to you believing that God is true. And so you fight these things by recognizing who God is, who the one you're looking to is. It is the supreme son who has suffered and died for you. It is the one worthy of, of much more glory than anything else you could ever fall back onto. The grounds on which believers have this boldness are the promises of God in the gospel that have come to their fulfillment in the sacrificial death of Christ. We don't have to doubt the faithfulness of God because Christ has died. And at the end of verse six, it's not just confidence or boldness, it's also verse six says our boasting in our hope, which is how the, the ESV translates it. And it comes across a bit confusing if you have the NIV, I think that captures the idea better because the NIV says that, that we must hold firmly to the hope in which we glory or the hope in which we rejoice. And so there's this confidence boasting, but it's also we, we, we hold fast to this hope, this hope that we rejoice in. Or the King James similarly says that we're of his house if we hold fast to our confidence in the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. The point being that just like our confidence must be held fast to, so also must the hope that we rejoice in. We must hold fast to rejoicing in the hope that's been promised us 
in and through Christ. Again, our lives are filled with pressures and sufferings and unexpected occurrences that can postpone our hope. This life is not filled with much hope sometimes. We think, what, what hope do I have? We'll see later in the book of Hebrews, they, their identification with, with Christians who are in prison, they're losing all their possessions and, and they, they appear hopeless. And so things can postpone our hope and in light of these things, the temptation is to lose confidence and to lose our steadfastness. And the author of Hebrews wants you to know, wants me to know, wants his audience to know that God is faithful, that the son was faithful, that Jesus died, was crucified, laid down his life, and now is over the house as the faithful son. And because of that, they too, we too can be faithful and persevere. And so faithfulness is required. So believer, faithfulness is required, not only for special servants like Moses, not only for the son, but faithfulness is required for all of God's people. And, and so in light of this text, I want, to, I want to exhort you, I want to encourage you to faithfulness, to consider Jesus, to fix your eyes on him. Remembering that, that his faithfulness is what grants you confidence. Because Christ was faithful, you can persevere. Because he was faithful, you have a sure and steadfast hope. Because he was faithful, you have a place in his house. And so we, we must not lose hope. Christ was faithful and is worthy of our attention and gaze and worship. And thus we are part of his house. As we hold, hold fast, we are part of his house and, and thus we're never alone. And so may we as God's people, by his strength alone, maintain our loyalty and hold fast to our boldness, whatever the opposition and hold fast to our hope, however attractive the alternatives are. Let us consider and hold fast to Jesus, to our confession, and thus remain in the house. So let me pray as we close.